You're listening to The Cumberland Road, and I'm your host, TJ Melanoski. The following is a faith journey with Reverend Earl Goodwin. He is a man of many talents, a full-time floral designer, a minister at the Stevenson Cumberland Presbyterian Church in North Alabama, and the stated clerk of Robert Donnell Presbytery. Earl walks me through his faith journey, and he doesn't shy away from the difficulties of entering and being in the Christian ministry, being bivocational and a cancer survivor, and the struggle to allow others to care for us in times of need. Earl is an interesting person, and he takes me along an interesting journey. So enjoy this faith conversation with Earl Goodwin. Well, Earl, let's begin. Uh, Tell me about your full-time work, what it is that you do. Full-time, I am a floral designer with a florist here in the Birmingham area. So there... Um, even though I work with flowers, I also do a lot with customer service um, because I'm much more patient and kinder than some of the people that I work with. <laughs> and so I do a lot of the funeral consultations, the wedding consultations, and I get the problem customers because I will listen to the little old ladies who did not like the flower arrangement that they got or who need to tell me all about their husband who died 15 years ago and they need flowers for his grave. So um, listening is something that got harped on me in seminary and then through the eight units of CPE, listening became something that became really important to me that I'm not always great at, but I do feel is important for the person to feel heard. And so that plays out even in my work in a flower shop in that I want to make sure that Everybody who calls in gets heard about what they would like for their flowers to look like or what their occasion is so that I can celebrate with them the happy times, even though I really don't know them at all, or that I can be with them and allow them to share in their sad times. And flowers usually are one of the two extremes. It's either a real happy occasion or it's a real sad occasion. Um, we don't get a lot of just because flowers. Hmm. Um, They're either a birth, a birthday or death. Occasionally you get the the guys who are trying to make good with the girls that they're with or their wives to make sure that they're happy. Um, But usually it's a happy occasion that we're doing. So, all right. So the flowers can cover the beginning and the end. And occasionally something in the middle. And all the stuff in the middle, yes. <laughs> How do people order flowers now? Do you still get phone calls and face-to-face interaction? Or is it online? Some face-to-face, some face-to-face, some online. But we try and get most of our customers to do phone call or face-to-face mm. um, so that we can actually talk to them about how to uh, personalize everything. We like for our stuff not to look the same every time. We don't like, this is going to sound bad, but the arrangements that are online, we don't mind doing those, but 
we like to add our personal touch to it, um, make it a little bit more personal for the person sending it. Mm-hmm. So it's all about um, just making sure that it actually says what the person's trying to say. If you were left on your own to design you know, an arrangement, what would you choose? What's your favorite? I like something that's a little bit more elegant, a little bit more stylized. Um, I enjoy some of the flowers. Like my mother hated calla lilies, and they're one of my favorites. Um, So I like things that have a different kind of line to them, a different kind of shape to them. Roses are kind of stagnant. They grow kind of straight. They're beautiful. I still love roses, but they're not my favorite. Mm. So, and then one of the things that I enjoy are flowers that people don't like, which are carnations, because they associate them with funerals so much. But they come in such a variety of colors now that they are not just that old funeral flower. Mm. I miss some of the flowers from my youth because uh, they don't do the big football mums for homecoming in Alabama anymore. Mm. We're not if we were in t- and they're not near as big as Texas. In fact, homecomings are now like fall formals, so they're now wrist corsages and petite and dainty little corsages, which are fine. I like those, but there's something about the streamers that that have messages on them that go all the way to the girls' ankles and all that kind of stuff. Do you prefer flowers and a flower arrangement with an aroma or those with minimal scent? Well, since I can no longer smell them because I am nose blind to the scent of flowers, oh, I have no preference. People will come in the flower shop and go, it smells so good in here. And I'm going, I don't smell it anymore. And the people from Domino's came in, they're handing out coupons trying to get some business. And they're going, oh, it smells so good in here. And I'm going, I don't smell it anymore. But when I walk into your place, I smell that bread baking and it smells so good. And they go, you know, we don't smell that anymore. (laughs) So um, it's just where you work. If there are a lot of aromas, you get to where you don't smell them anymore. And so that's how I am with flowers. Mm. I have to get my nose way down in a flower. It's kind of like way up on my nose before I can smell it. <laughs> well, how did you get into floral? Des- <clears throat> Excuse me. How did you get into floral design? Um, it's just something that was always fun to do. Um, I took a class at, at Montevallo where I went to college. Um, they had some fun electives and one of them was a hospitality class. Okay. And so basically the class was, how to throw a tea or a party and how to decorate and do it. And so I did flowers with that and just, we had a great time with it. I had friends that were in it. It was an easy class. Um, And so, but it was a lot of fun. And so I ended up doing silk flowers for the president's home that year because I could do what she wanted with the silk flowers and so it's just always been a fall back on. I could always go back into it no matter what. Um, 
my my career path through all this has been so different. My resume until the last 20 years has been like every two years, a different job. <laughs> Which uh, jobs stand out to you? Uh, um, because the hardship and the way it ended teaching first grade mm. was probably my favorite, but it was difficult because I had 21 kids in my classroom, 19 of them received chapter one, chapter one or chapter two um, services because they were well below the reading and math level. Mm. So basically in other classes, the special ed teacher would come in, she would work with one or two kids. When she came to my room, she just helped me teach the class because she worked with everybody. Um, it was 19 black, one white, one Asian. So there was a lot of cross-cultural things with it that were tough. And my kids were just, they were tough kids. And um, two of my kids had mothers that were, that they were cousins. And their mothers had dated guys that were drug dealers. And so they'd almost had the kids taken away with them because the boyfriends would, um, put drugs on the end of needles and just like on the end of pins and put it into the kids ends of their fingers so that the kids would sleep and wouldn't disturb them mm. while they were with their mothers. So one of them was just an angry little girl. And one of them had, she was too high for the, what they used to call EMR class. Um, but she was too low for the, um, self-contained special ed class. So she fell in the cracks and got no services at all because she was in the cracks. And so she would go into the cloakroom and would cry if I looked at her wrong when I first got there. Mm. And if she spelled one word on the spelling test, she was doing well. And by the time I left, she was out with us all day. She didn't go in the cloakroom to cry. She was getting five to six words, and th that was doing great. So where most teachers had centers and, and all that kind of stuff, my day on Friday, Friday was test day. They had a reading test in the morning, and it took all morning. And they had a math test in the afternoon, and it took all afternoon but it was just the only way that I could actually get it done with the kids. And so to an administrator, it doesn't look good. She didn't see how they were when I first got there. She did not come in to observe my classroom until the very, very end. And so I say this and I can't back it up, but it appears that she did not like male teachers because she did not renew my contract and she made life miserable for the other man in the building, and he transferred schools the next year and did not talk about why he transferred. Hmm. So um, I taught that one year. It was a rough year. I learned about politics and education. So um, it was rough, but I did love it. But I just did not want to go back into it because of the education, because of all the politics with it. How did you or how do we love on children that need that support, need that adult attention, need that um, encouragement? 
and how do you do that in an environment that is primarily intended for education? It was really tough. Um, the majority of my kids came from a kindergarten classroom with a teacher that did not need to be there. And they knew, drank a lot and did not really teach. And so I could tell my kids that came from which kindergarten class they came from. Mm. And so they just needed someone who was going to love on them and listen to them. And that was difficult because they didn't have that. And the other thing that gets me in trouble is the no touch policy that is so prevalent in a lot of education. And no, I was not going to lift my kids up in my lap. But if I'm sitting there and one of the kids comes up to give me a hug and sits on my knee, I'm not going to push them out of my lap. If they come up and they put their arms around my waist, I'm not going to tell them to stop. Um, they just needed so much attention. And I had to find ways to give it to them and still teach them at the same time. And that was what was so difficult. They really did just need a lot of time. Um, one of my kids actually got spanked by their mother in front of the classroom. And she wasn't a bad kid, a really bad kid. She just needed some direction. But mama's working three jobs. Mm -hmm. So she's at home being taken care of by an older sister that mama comes and picks her up from after school care, takes her home, changes clothes, goes to her next job while her kids are all taking care of themselves. And I, I think I met two dads the whole year. And I think that's all the dads that there were. Um, one of mine that stayed back and repeated first grade is, mom tell me she said mr goodwin you are the only man who's ever been in his life he's never had a man in his life hmm. and she wouldn't send him to summer school because um she couldn't guarantee that he could make it to all the classes because she was in housing because they had been homeless and if she missed up her job and lost her job she also lost her house and so it was easier for her to find somebody to watch her child all day so she could work than it was to make sure her child got to summer school every day during summer. And she told me, she said, Mr. Goodwin, he got in your class what he should have gotten in kindergarten. She said, so he's not ready. And I wished I knew where they all were because they're now all in their 30s. And so I have no clue where they are, but they just they taught me a lot about caring for people in ways that were different than were actually mandated and considered the norm. Mm -hmm. What other careers stick out in your mind since you had this period in your life where you were reinventing, you were changing, you were exploring what Earl, Earl was going to contribute to the world? I enjoyed my time in educational supply sales because I got to work with teachers and help them do what I couldn't do. Mm. So, and I did a lot with early childhood, which is one of my passions. I love the little kids. 
if I had stayed in education, I was going to go back and get my master's in early childhood education and work in kindergarten because so many of the kids that I worked with didn't have fathers at home, didn't have grandfathers at home. And so I worked with teachers who were working with them. So I was doing all the fun stuff. I was doing the arts and crafts. I was making the games uh, and, and loved showing all those teachers a different way of doing it going, well, okay, we've done it this way, but I looked at this and said, I can do this this way and just loved it. It was great, but it just, it, school supply and retail sales, it's, it's changed over the years. You don't find as many school supply stores as you used to have. Um, just because online shopping has done a lot to retail. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't like that because one of the things I've always felt is that we get too isolated. We isolate ourselves. And so um, that's one way that retail and shopping was one way you saw people. You got to go see people. You saw them shopping. Um, shopping was a big deal, whether most of my friends have been female through the years. So shopping was always a big thing for them. But even my male friends had things that they liked to go shopping for. And so I would go with them for things that I had no interest in at all. <laughs> sure, let's go car shopping or you need auto parts. Okay, sure. I'll go with you. Let's go. <laughs> There is a fellowship aspect about that, uh, seeing people that you know and meeting people for the first time, engaging them in conversation, whether it's at the grocery store or Target or uh, AutoZone and everything Mm -hmm. in between. And people make fun of the fellowship aspect of, well, we're always eating. But that to me is so important because especially like I look at youth groups now, it used to be that your youth group all went to the same school or you had one or two schools. But even when I was in it in seminary, the church that I went to, they weren't. None of them went to the same school. I had like 12 kids in youth group and had 10 different schools represented. Mm -hmm. So um, that's why the fellowship aspect of, of life is so important is because we don't see eat everybody every day. Um, we don't. We don't all live in the same community. Um, the church I go to here in town, when I'm not in in Stevenson, they're from all over as well. They're not all from the same area, and so they're represented by a multitude of high schools and communities. And people will drive 35, 45 minutes one way to go to church. Mm-hmm. So that's why me driving two and a half hours, I just think, okay, this is just part of it. Yeah, um, you're serving the Stevenson Church in Stevenson, Alabama, Cumberland Presbyterian Mm -hmm. Church, and you live in the Birmingham area. So you have this opportunity to commute. Uh, I wanted to, I know we're jumping around here in your faith journey. Um, How do you utilize that uh, drive time time? back and forth as you're preparing for worship, but also um, when you return home, you know, you're kind of leaving your community of faith that you're a part of and that you're serving. Um, The drive up is final worship prep. 
my sermon will change a lot <laughs> in that drive. So I'm listening to podcasts. I'm listening to music. Mm -hmm. um, but it's liable to change. Uh, that's why I've gotten to where I don't do sermon titles anymore. Mm -hmm. And somebody at the church asked me about that. It's because my sermon can change drastically from Saturday to Sunday. And that has always been the case. Um, even when I was driving 15 minutes to Alabaster, in that 15 minutes, my sermon could completely change. And I'm walking in during while they're having Sunday school, trying to get things on the projector that are being projected on the wall or doing film clips or pictures that are going to go with the sermon. Um, so it is with Stevenson, that drive up there is time for me to re-listen to a podcast that has said something to me during that week to rewind it and going back. Okay, did I actually hear what I thought I heard? Um, those sorts of things. Um, how can I blend in two or three sets of scripture that sometimes don't relate or how can they relate? So that drive up there, it's a, it's a nice drive. It's nice, quiet time which I'm not good at doing. Um, but driving <laughs> is my quiet time. Um, the shower is my quiet time. And so that drive allows me a lot of time to reflect on what's going on and what's happening in life. Now, on the way back, it's um, gearing back to coming back to the reality of uh, the world as I see it during the week. Mm -hmm. And I have a friend who... Uh, Shannon likes her, her time to talk to me. And so our conversations are long. So I call Shannon and we talk in the car and rehash the day. And she tells me about what happened at the church that I'm not able to attend anymore. And I tell her what happened at my church. And I get geared back to being back into the reality of this is what I have to do all week. <laughs> yeah, you were, you were talking about sermon titles I don't like doing that either. I feel like that sermon titers, titles can be a lot like um, comic book covers. You, know, you used to read comic books as a kid, and you'd be excited about it and be like, oh, man, there's all this action and activity. And then you flip through the pages, and what the cover represented is not what happens in the story. I feel like sermons are a lot of times like that. It'll be something clever or witty, and then you listen to the sermon and it'd be like that those two things did not connect at all. And or or on my end, you preach the sermon and be like, Yeah, I really missed the mark if this was the theme. So I just quit doing it. I had one at a church one time, and it's a sermon that I preach over and over again. It's it's one called My Last Word. And it's about picking a one word that is important to me. Mm-hmm. And so I go through the sermon and people who have heard me preach it before know that my word is nothing. And, and there were four points to the sermon and I, and I repeat them at the end. And it's, I came into this world with nothing. I will go out of this world with nothing. I did nothing to make God love me, but nothing will make God stop loving me. But one of the members of the congregation read that and she thought that it was going to be my last sermon. And so she's, she's ultimately, she's, she's concerned 
about why I'm not going to preach anymore. Mm-hmm. She's listening to make sure that it's that it's going to be profound. And um, unlike Laura, Laura was in the choir loft. So unlike Laura, usually I saw her at the end on the way out. No, she is out of that choir loft and up the aisle going, you better tell me this is not your last sermon. And I went, no, it's not my last sermon, but that will be my last word. So if there's anything at my funeral, it has to be around the word nothing. Mm. And so even to the point of I have a piece of artwork, it's in my car now, I need to get it back up in the house, that is the letters that spell out the word nothing over and over and over again. Mm. Because for her, that was one of the most profound sermons she heard. She even took the recording and gave it to her son who was in seminary. And um, and I'm just going, sometimes I think the, the most profound things I say just don't hit at all. And some of the things I think just aren't profound at all, people just find very moving. So, yeah, yeah. I can when I find guess. myself quoted in a Sunday school class, I'm thinking, okay, you did okay. Uh, that's pretty scary to be quoted. Uh, well, I also think well, usually I don't remember where it came from. So I heard <laughs> someone say one time, and I just have to sit there going, that was me, but I don't say it. So you carry artwork around in your vehicle. Yes, I do. You'd be surprised what's in my vehicle. There's a little bit of everything. You need yeah. me to sing? There's music so I can sing for you. Um, okay. Right now, there's a big ball of yarn in my car. <laughs> do you do you rotate your art pieces in your vehicle? or? <laughs> no, not usually. And usually that one's hanging up right by the entryway into my house. So, but... I preach from the the scripture that's related to that, which is Romans 8. And so I was preaching that at Stevenson not too long ago, and I, th- I thought, okay, I'm going to take this just in case. And um, I didn't use it. I like using props and m- movie clips and, and song clips and that sort of thing that go along with my sermon. And at Alabaster, I had all the technology to do that when I was there. We don't have that at Stevenson. So um, I'm still working on finding a way. Um, I want to do a series called The Gospel According to Broadway sometime, but I really have to work out all the kinks of how to get the technology in there for that. But I think that there's enough there that would make it a fun sermon series. Do you envision that including uh, both song and dance? Um, I would love it if it did. I love dance in church. Um, I have the Alabaster Church in all the years that I have been there, which so that you know, um, the University of Montevallo where I went to school is like 10 minutes from the Alabaster Church. So I started going there when I was in college. So it has always been considered my second home CP church. My home church um, now is no longer. They moved and the Presbytery has since closed the church. So all the things from my childhood are gone. Mm -hmm. So Alabaster would be considered my home CP church. And so I have gone back and forth uh, in between things, I have been um, contemporary worship leader. I have been associate pastor. 
Um, so I've done all kinds of things there. Well, one of the things that Darren liked to do as well was put the movie clips and all those sorts of things in there. But we've always had girls that danced. And so I've always liked doing that. And the first one was so long ago. I don't even remember. Heather Whitestone was Miss America. And she did the dance to Via Della Rosa. So one of the girls in the youth group was a big dancer. And so for Good Friday, we ended the service with that. And at the end of the dance, she ended it with both arms out and her head down. And as soon as we were through, I went and touched her back. She dropped her arms and the two of us walked out in silence. And it was such a moving, more moving than anything I could ever say, part of the service. Um, we did that on Christmas Eve, had dance in the middle of the service as well. And it just is such a beautiful way to add to a service. Um, um, music, dance, um, dramatic reading, all that to me has such a big place in the church. And we so often overlook it that not only does it add so much to worship, but it also says to the people who are doing it, you've got a talent and there are ways of using that to glorify God as well as just, it's not just dancing, it's a gift and it can be shared and it can be moving and it can be um, life changing. Yeah, there. I think an underutilized aspect of worship is the the movement of the body. Um, mm -hmm. It is has a liturgical message in its own right, uh, and I'm saying this as somebody who does not have any dancing abilities or singing abilities or preaching abilities for that matter. But anyway, I digress. Um, but yeah, it's certainly an underutilized aspect of ways in which we can glorify God. We do it with our body movements anyway. We talk about the hands and feet. Why wouldn't that be incorporated in our worship experiences? Yeah. Oh, most definitely. So that's why um, I enjoyed the aspect of being able to project things onto the wall at Alabaster because I could find a, a clip off of YouTube or TikTok and um, it would speak and say things so much better than I ever could. <laughs> right. And so, yeah, there's a so, visual. I mean, there's a visual aspect um, as well. Mm -hmm. And and it definitely kept the people there interactive with the sermon because they never knew what what was going to be me and what was going to be something on the wall. Um, for Darren, it allowed him to show maps of where it was going, or for him to involve a song or a clip. Um, there are so many technologically technological aspects to that that add to worship. Um, and I know a lot of churches don't like things being projected on a screen or on a wall, but it does have its place. It um, For Alabaster, it put um, the words up on the screen so if they knew the song they're looking up their heads are no longer buried in a book they're looking up 
So if they're singing, they're singing. If not, they're looking at it. They're seeing the words. So they, it, it just, it bring, makes them more involved. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just can't substitute for it. Um, one of the churches here in Birmingham has satellite um, churches and they're all on the same time schedule so that the, the main preaching is done from the main campus and is piped into all the satellites. And so that to me is, I just can't see it yet. So I'm not there. Besides, I'm not a mega church person. I, I, most of the churches I've been involved with have been smaller churches, mm-hmm. not as small as Stevenson, but they've been smaller churches. Um, Alabaster in its heyday was, was considered one of the big churches in the denomination. And I enjoyed that because it gave us opportunities to do things that the smaller church can't do. But I don't want to be so big that I don't know most everybody who comes in every Sunday. Right, right. I am I am big on that connection. It's just, it's so, so important. Earl, let's talk about your early childhood and growing up in the church, uh, profession of faith. We'll just see where our conversation goes from there. Um, I was baptized in a PCUSA church as a as a child, and um, we went. Well, I say USA. It was probably US before the big merger. Um, <laughs> You're dating yourself, Earl. <laughs> I know. Well, I'm old, uh, so. Um, but yeah. Oh, please, dating myself. I remember when Trinium did the big celebration of the merger. So I was there that year. Okay. So let's date myself. I went to the first triennium. So, (laughs) but I kind of grew up in the church. We didn't go very often, but we, we did go. And then um, about 10 or 11, we got invited to a different church, which was East Lake Cumberland Presbyterian church Mm -hmm. and went there and, um, I enjoyed it. I was there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and any night in between. Um, I just, I did enjoy going. We had a youth group that was great. Um, was able to sing in that, you could sing in the adult choir when you were like 12. So I got moved into the adult choir pretty quickly. Um, do you have a knack? So, do you have a natural knack for singing? Yeah, I do. Um, it's something that I enjoy even today. Um, so I sang in the children's choir and I sang in the adult choir and was involved with, with all the things during the youth, did youth group, all that kind of stuff. So, so it wasn't a huge church. The East Lake Church was just a, a just a, I guess your average come on Presbyterian church. Hmm. Um, I got to see some of the kids at my high school, but we were one of those youth groups where we had people that went to different, different schools. So, um, youth group activities were very nice and, um, stayed there when I was in college. Um, and, uh, also went to what was then the Elliottsville church, which is now the Alabaster church. And, um, Elliottsville nurtured me as much as my home church did. And so um, went between the two churches. 
and about my sophomore year in college, um, I felt the call to the ministry and, um, but it wasn't to be the, it wasn't preaching ministry. It was to be a ministry of education. Education has always been my thing. Mm -hmm. And so, but I knew that if I was going to get a job that paid very well, I would have to go the ordination route. That directors of, of Christian education just don't get paid well <laughs> for the most part. Right. Then so to now. all those people who are, uh, yeah, I'm starting to say to all those people who are doing that now full time, you have my love and admiration um, because I know that it's not for the money. And so I went through, finished my degree, which is in elementary education, and um, went to seminary for a semester. Um, I did not have a car. I went four years of college without a car. <laughs> How did you um, get around? Montevallo is a small town. I mean, it's a small town. So if I needed to go to the grocery store, I walked or I talked to friends. And if I wanted to go home for the weekend, there was somebody who would drop me off on their way home. And my parents would take the drive into the country on Sunday afternoon and take me back. Hmm. And it was, it was not so far that it was a huge burden, um, but it was too far for me to commute every day. Mm. And it was even bigger problem because I didn't have a car. <laughs> so I started out seminary without a car as well. <laughs> Big difference living in Memphis and trying to go to the school without a car as it was at Montevallo. So when, um, let me interrupt you. So when you entered into seminary for this semester, you still had in mind the uh, education route, Christian education route. Um, yeah, if I had to do the other, yes, I would. But it was still going to be education was my primary focus. Um, and so I started seminary, went through that. Uh had not made too many friends the first couple of weeks and was trying to walk to church to go to what was the Park Avenue church, which was the closest one to um, where I was living because seminary housing was not all that on Roberta and St. Agnes hmm. back there. Um, the single male housing was over on McLean not too far, not too far from union. So, which was not bad for living because two blocks down was a grocery store and big department store and all that kind of stuff. But it was like a mile trek to the seminary mm. and it was like a five mile trek to the, to the church. So I didn't make it to church that first Sunday I was up there and told my parents that maybe this wasn't the right thing. And, and so made an early decision to come home at the end of the semester. So you did Finally finish met, the semester out. I did finish the semester out, got to become friends with, um, Jay Earhart Brown and, um, Terry Hunley and a bunch of other guys. And Jay was the pastoral assistant to Paul Brown at Germantown. And so, Jay would take me, Jay would pick me up on Sunday morning, take me to Germantown, did everything. And everything was great. I would have wanted to have continued on, but my parents said, no, you said you were coming home. So I came home 
took a year off, got the car and went back. And by that time, Paul Brown was no longer at Germantown. He was at the seminary. So Jay was no longer at Germantown. But Terry Hunley was at Germantown as a pastoral assistant um, to um, William Warren. And um, when I went back, I went back in the middle of winter and um, the seminary housing was not ready. So I, ha- I, I lived with Eugene and Rosemary Warren for a couple of weeks. And that was right as William was interviewing Germantown to come back to Germantown. And his family was so wonderful. Eugene and Rosemary were great. The people of Germantown were wonderful. Um, Bob and Connie Bush took me into their family. So it was great. Um, and went back to seminary, took on a variety of jobs during seminary, and came home. Now, being a single person trying to find a job is difficult. I don't know if you and Melissa were married before you graduated seminary or not, but if not, then you missed out on the wonderful joys of trying to be a single person looking for a church job. Mm. And and so uh, one of the churches even that was interested in me was looking for somebody to do education. But when they found out that I was single, uh, told my mother that they wouldn't be interested, that they were looking for a couple so that there was a wife that the girls could relate to as well as somebody for the guys. And um, mom was real quick to go, you know, he never had any trouble with the girls relating with him at his other churches. And she was right. <laughs> I didn't. Uh, to this day, I'm still wonderful friends with um, the girls from my youth group. And so never been a problem, but I, I understand uh, as Dr. Buck so clearly put it, it doesn't matter whether you are or not when you're single, they're so worried about whether you're going to try and date somebody, all the things of being a pedophile or being gay, um, all those sorts of things always been there, whether it was an issue or not, it's, it's just always underlying. So it was difficult for me to get a job. So it was a year after graduation before I was ordained, before I got a job. What did you do in the meantime? I worked retail. Mm. Um, and so retail and I substitute taught some. And so it just, it was enough to pay the bills. It was enough to get me a car. It was enough to get me going. Um, I was still doing things with the East Lake church. Um, and then to date myself even more, this was before stores really opened on Sunday. <laughs> So here, yes, I'm dating myself again. <laughs> and they started opening from one to six on Sunday, and I was going to have to work some. And there was no way to work, to go to church and work with the way things were with the church then, with the Eastlake Church. So it was slowly becoming the Advent Church. But the Elliottsville Church had an early worship service at 830 so I could go to worship down there, maybe even go to Sunday school and then head to work and be at work on time. Okay. So that's when I started going there. And that became my full-time church 
not only because of work, but because the expectations of the church I grew up in were really different. All the people my age were now married, except for me, or they were seriously dating. And so everything, every activity that they did for people my age were for couples. And I wouldn't get invited. And Barry Anderson was my pastor. And Barry and I were talking one time, and I said, well, Barry, I didn't get invited to that. And Barry goes, well, I'll invite you to it. And I went, it's not your place to invite me. And I wouldn't feel comfortable with not being invited by the host. Hmm. And so that's when I said, you know, maybe it's time for me to change churches. And so at Alabaster, it was just a mis- mis- mishmash of different ages and all that going on. So it was always I could find something to do. Mm-hmm. So Alabaster became home. And so even when I was ordained, it was a mixing of the two congregations. Um, the ordination was held at the Eastlake Church um, because that allowed them to be part of it. But the Alabaster Choir was came and sang. And um, the pastors from the Eastlake Church that I grew up with were all alive then. So like Pete Hegwood came from his church and um, Ken Davis came out of retirement and Barry was there and Terry Maynard was there. So all the people I called pastor were part of my ordination service. So it was really, it was a wonderful day. It allowed the people from Alabaster had no trouble coming up to Eastlake for that service for me. The people from Eastlake that wouldn't have gone to Alabaster were able to be there for me. So it was really a nice day. Mm. It was a a nice mix of two very different congregations. So, but it was really good. So, and then from there, Alabaster became home. And so did a lot of things there. And when I got my first church, they sent me off. And I went to Fayetteville and I was at Fayetteville for a a while. And um, one of the things that came out of one of my years of training, well, one of my trainiums was that um, some kids from this church came up and said, our church is looking, it was a PCUSA church. We're looking for a youth director. Can we put your name in? Sure. Why not? What's going to come of it? Mm -hmm. Well, my name did come up. And I made it to telephone interviews, which was like the third step in their process. Mm. So their next step was an in uh, was an, a face-to-face interview and all this. And it was a huge church and a huge program. But the Fayetteville Church found out I was looking and said, we hope you'll get this resolved soon so that we'll know whether you're with us or not. And in my young, impetuous self, I just went, okay. Well, we'll just say the end of the year, that's it. And so I put in my resignation. I turned it in months early and said the end of the year, that's it. And um, it really was for the best in some ways because um, the next person that they hired was the pastor's wife, which they could hire at less pay than they did me. And then 
they had to terminate the job completely mm-hmm. uh, within the next nine months to a year because it just it was just one of those things. It was an extra. So I went to the Columbia, Tennessee church, and I worked with David McGregor. And David was a good pastor, but we pastored very differently. Um, even the way we worked was very different. David worked in complete silence and I had music going almost all the time. So I would end up going to, they had just built a family life center and that's why they thought they needed an associate was they have this family life center. They have this youth group. They need somebody to run all this. Mm -hmm. So, um, I did what I could do, but that summer I was traveling a lot with my duties and so it was like camp, home, camp, home, CPYC, home, General Assembly, home. And it didn't go away over well with a couple of families in the church. And so there was a session meeting where they brought me that they called a session meeting. I was there. Nobody told me what it was for. And when I looked at my close friends on the session, none of them would look at me that night. And so when I found out I was the topic of the session meeting, I knew that that there was nothing that I could do. And so after they talked, they said, is there anything you'd like to say? And I said, yeah, before you fire me, I quit. Mm. And they said, okay. And I said, the contract was a 60-day contract. And one of the families that was not happy said, we'll pay you for your 60 days. We'll make it immediate. And I went, okay. Uh, Vacation Bible School started the very next night. All the stuff was in my office. So some people had things to say, but somebody else went, no, I bet everything's in his office. And it was, and they went in there and found it. Um, The sad thing about all that is um, I left in August, and that November I was back up there for the death of one of my kids. And was very thankful that Amy and I had, we'd had some trouble that summer and we had gotten it worked out. Um, and I don't know what all, I don't think anybody knew what all was going on, but, um, Amy committed suicide. And so, um, that was really rough and going back into that, that church that was hostile was not easy. Um, but I knew that those were still my kids and that they needed me and I needed them. Mm. And so that just taught me that there are going to be times where I'm going to go back to where I'm not always welcome, but where I'm needed. Mm. And I'm not always wanted where I'm needed. So, um, and Amy's death still today has such a profound effect on me that when people talk about suicide prevention, it's one, it's a big deal for me. So it affected me greatly. Earl, we were talking off mic that, um, you had a, you had cancer at a certain stage in your life. Um, where does that fit into the timeline of your ministry? And what was that like going through that process? It was just over five years ago. In fact, 
Well, Monday, this past Monday, was the five-year anniversary of my surgery that was the final step of my cancer process. I had bladder cancer. Um, I had an invasive tumor that was trying to eat its way out of my bladder Mm. and was causing a lot of bleeding. And so with that, you go through chemo to kind of kill everything. And then you have to have your bladder removed so that to make sure that it doesn't come back, come out at all. So, um, I went in because I was having too many, what they thought was urinary tract infections and ended up being the cancer diagnosis, which I got on Valentine's day, which was an Ash Wednesday. Mm. Um, I really, the only way they knew anything was going on was one of the ladies from church was having some tests done. And I told her that I would keep her in my prayers but that I wouldn't be able to be with her because I was having tests done that same day. And so when I went in for my diagnosis, my friend Elizabeth, who was absolutely wonderful, went through everything with me, said, you know, you don't have to tell them tonight. And I said, yeah, I do, because they're going to know. And so Ash Wednesday took on a whole different meaning that night and um, started chemo, that was February, started chemo the end of March and um, was set to preach at some midweek Lenten services. And I thought, okay, my prayer that year was, I'm going to start this, but God, I just would like to celebrate Easter this year. And so the effects of chemo weren't that bad at first. So I made it through to Easter. Um, the side effects from chemo were, were both emotional and physical. Um, I could not hug, which we talked about off mic. Mm -hmm. They told me that I couldn't hug people, which I hug more than I shake hands. That's just me. (laughs) And so that was really difficult. Mm -hmm. And I got to where I was the correlation between the hugging and the chemo. Um, chemo takes your immune system down to nothing. And so hugging puts you in such a close proximity to somebody who might be sick and they don't want you to get sick. So, um, no more hugging. Um, even handshakes were not really fist bumps became the thing. And this was all pre COVID. So fist bumps were the big thing because shaking hands were another way of, carrying diseases. Mm -hmm. So my white count was constantly under surveillance because they did not want me to get sick. I also got to where I could not tell you anything nice, wonderful, good that was happening in my life without crying about it. I cried a lot during chemo. Um, I cried because people were nice to me. I cried because I couldn't hug people. I think I scared a friend of mine because I called him and just wailed for 20 minutes <laughs> about how horrible this all was. And I think he called me every day during chemo and during my treatment just to make sure I was okay. Uh, that's a pretty good friend. Well, and so when he goes through his rough stuff, we still call each other. We're still best of friends. 
David was my roommate in college. And so we have remained friends for the years since we were in college. <laughs> um, actually, I can say it. It's been 45 years since we were freshmen in college. Wow. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So, but I, I freaked him out and I called him because the other people that I could wail to that would listen um, that I felt comfortable wailing to were not available that day. And that's also where I had to struggle with learning how to let people care for me. Um, I had spent years as a caregiver in the last years of her life. My mother was completely paralyzed and I was the only one who was taking care of her. My other family members either emotionally couldn't handle taking care of mom or physically couldn't because they had issues that they couldn't roll her, turn her, do whatever needed to be done. So that was me. That was my, my goal. Mm. Um, I gave up my social life. I gave up all kinds of things for my mother. I don't regret any of it, but it meant that I understood what it was like to give care for somebody. So it means that I don't like receiving care. I don't like for people to take care of me. It was the first time in my adult life I'd been in the hospital at all other than to visit other people. Um, so it, it's, it's a struggle. It's still a struggle in that I have friends who want to do things for me and I don't want to ask them to do that or I don't want to let them do that. And even though I got told long ago and I hear it and I think it and I tell it to other people, I have a tendency to stop people from blessing me because I don't know. I just, I have trouble with that. So I have trouble with people throwing parties for me. I don't like birthday parties. I definitely don't like surprise parties, housewarmings <laughs> and things like that. They're all a struggle for me because that's allowing somebody to do something for me that I should be doing for myself, mm -hmm. I guess. I understand that. And I so, do. so cancer really, really, um, taught me that I had to rely on other people. Um, I had a friend who took a week out of his life. Luckily, he worked remotely from home. And so he came down and spent a week with me just to make sure that I ate and that I exercised and I did all the things that I was supposed to do. I didn't. I fought it, but and I let people bring me meals. And they did and they were wonderful. But, you know, when you're it's just you or it's just you and one other person, most people don't know how to cook for that. And so I was freezing food and eating it later or unfortunately having to throw some of it away because I had no appetite. It started my weight loss journey. My weight loss journey with my mother, I lost weight without trying. I, and so from my highest to where I am now, I've lost over 50 pounds. In fact, closer to 60 to 70 without trying, without dieting, without anything else. So it's just a matter of I took care of my mother and that took a lot of it off. Cancer took a lot of it off. I just never have gone back to it. And one of the things that they were constantly on me and chemo, chemo about was I would lose weight the two weeks that I was on chemo. But luckily for them, I would gain it back. 
the week I was off chemo because it was two weeks of chemo and off a week. Mm -hmm. So um, I learned how to let people make meals for me, take care of me, drive me back and forth. I don't like being chauffeured too often. <laughs> I only have a few friends that I will that I will ride with. I don't know. It's just, I know. I am strange. I am weird. I accept it. And 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 I work on it all the time. And so, but I still struggle with that of letting people do for me what I normally will do for other people. I mean, in the middle of, of all this career change and stuff, I did two years of CPE, eight units. Most people look at me going, eight units, are you are you nuts? <laughs> but I did that because caring for other people is just a big part of me. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's just who I am. So being a chaplain gave me a chance to care for other people. But cancer gave me a chance to be cared for. And even in the five years since all this, I still have that's still my struggle is to let people care for me the way I care for other people. And um, that's difficult. I think that that's a difficult struggle for a lot of clergy because they're, they are so used to caring for everybody else that when they get to the point to where they have something difficult, they really don't know how to let other people in. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Because you're taught not to create friendships within your congregation because you'll be seen as being partial to one group or one one family. And that's not a good thing. And so you end up struggling alone in everything that you do. Um, one of the podcasts that I listened to lately, they've been talking about mental health issues for clergy and how it's two pastors who do it. And that the one thing that gets them through all their struggles is that they know that they have each other and that at least once a week they're going to talk to each other and that they can talk to each other about whatever they want to talk about and can, str can struggle with anything. But if you're in it by yourself, then it's, then it's difficult. And that's been me. I may not be an only child, but my brother and I are so different that... I, he grew up and was out of the house before I was really growing up. And so sometimes I feel like an only child. And so I have a tendency to do things by myself. So that struggle to be a part of community and let community care for you is a big struggle. It's huge. Yeah, I, I understand. And, and to um, receive care or receive kindness. Uh, I And I'm not encouraging anybody to do this. I almost feel like I would do better if you were yelling at me. I can receive that better than uh, words of appreciation. That's not an invitation, but it just seems like, oh, I can handle that better. I just feel weirded out when somebody expresses their appreciation or an act of kindness or or uh, bring attention of something that maybe I, I had said or did and don't even remember it. I'd, I'd almost rather you have have you yell at me and tell me what you don't like about me. I was like, oh, okay, I can handle that better than, than the appreciation. And then you pack on top of that the how isolating ministry can be 
Um, those aren't good concoctions to have in, in places of leadership and certainly in the community of faith that we're, that we're a part of and called to lead in. Mm-hmm. That's why I also have a tendency to look for the caregivers in a congregation so that they that I can support them mm. because they often are the the lone rangers that are doing things and even within the church um I have a wonderful friend and I'm not going to name her but she'll know if she hears this she'll know exactly who she is <laughs> that takes all her jobs and she does such a wonderful job but she will never tell you that she does a wonderful job because she cannot hear the compliments she cannot hear what she's doing well. All she can hear is, I need to be doing more. I need to be doing more. I need to be doing more. And whether it's a job at the church or taking care of a family, um, with the Alabaster Congregation, um, one of the big events for them was when one of the families experienced their adult child having a traumatic brain injury. And so um, Kyle was in an automobile accident and was not sure what was going to happen. And so Kyle still has a lot of lingering effects from the traumatic brain injury, which means his family are his caregivers. And so I watch Bob and Lynn and I encourage Bob and Lynn all the time and they are absolutely wonderful with their child. And, and it's hard to say child. They're absolutely wonderful with their son. And um, Kyle is just such a loving adult, but he may not remember that he met you 30 minutes from now. Mm but he's still going to hug you and love on you no matter what. So I just, I watch them and I love watching them because they are so loving and caring with their child who is now so loving and caring of other people so that it's just, it's just a wonderful thing. So I have a tendency to watch for the caregivers in the congregation and in life. I mean, that's just, that's my big thing is to support those who are supporting other people. So I always go out of my way in a hospital to thank nurses, um, to thank the people who come in and do what they do. When my mother was in rehab, I always made sure that I knew who the CNAs were and that they always had my appreciation so that they would call me and let me know what was going on with my mother. Um, so, yeah, that's it's it's a big struggle. Earl, um, looking over the course of your life and these trials and these ups and downs with health and career celebrations and struggles, where was God in the midst of all of this for you? Oh, God was right there in the middle of it. It, it, it amazes me that all those things that sound like struggles really were so, they were just easy transitions. Um, one job would end and I may be out of a job for a little bit, 
but I didn't have to do a lot of job hunting. Another job just came up or somebody would see me at one job going, I like the way you do this. We need somebody here at this job doing this. How about that? Um, I got a part-time job because the way I directed a wedding at a church one time. (laughs) So God's always been there. I mean, it's just so many little things that just have added up to make things good wherever I am. So even in the midst of, of all the things that are hard, I always knew that God was there. So, um, struggling with mom's health, struggling with my health, there was never any doubt at all that God was right in the middle of it, that God would struggle with me. God would rejoice with me. And, um, God would chastise me through other people when I was doing the stupid things and not receiving the care that I needed to receive and all those sorts of things. So um, it's always, there's always been something or someone that I just look at and go, okay, this is how God's in the middle of this with me. That That God's not going to fix everything for me. And that I have to learn to be okay with where I am and who I am. And that's also a big struggle. Um, I don't make the money that I'd like to make. I don't have the home I would like to have. I don't get to go on the trips that I have to have. But um, I have enough and I have a home. And I know that I have friends who have told me that if tomorrow everything was wiped out, I did not have a place to live. I did not have a job that they would, I would have a place to live. I have one that would tell me he would create for me a job. Um, They are there with me in every struggle. So I know that I am beyond blessed with ways of handling all the ups and downs. And so when I struggle, they'll be there to struggle with me. And so I can't ever look back on a time in my life where I thought, well, God was not there with me. God's always been there with me, Mm -hmm. always. And so, and I look at people and I go, you know, if God can love me and take care of me, God's going to do that for everybody else if they will just let God. And so that's why I also like to work with community organizations that are helping people. Um, and my my pastoral heroes are people who are working with them. I tell the people in Stevenson that I have two leases in my life that are my heroes, and they both work with the homeless. Between Sacred Sparks Ministry in Nashville and Room in the Inn in Memphis, um, I am always always amazed at what those two leases do and the love and compassion that they have for other people who struggle and who just need somebody to love and care for them. They are, they are my pastoral heroes. And, and I, and I look at other pastors and I think, okay, what makes them so special? And usually it is the way they care for their congregation, the way that they care for people, um, 
they may not be the most academically gifted people. In fact, usually those people are not the ones that are my big heroes. It's the ones that are down to earth who get get down and dirty with people who need help, who are willing to listen to those who aren't listened to, um, who aren't so concerned with what their status looks like and can do the everyday stuff with everyday people. Yeah. Um, Humble, Because there are just grateful. masters that, that just aren't really people people. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. They just they have trouble um, doing everyday things like going to dinner or going to a movie without trying to make it a big theological experience or a big congregational event or something like that. You know, sometimes people like you just to go to the movie, just to go to the movie or to come to dinner, just to come to dinner. Mm. Um, Beer and hymns is, is just enjoying being with each other and singing hymns that everybody knows. Um, I have no trouble with all those things. I love those things. So, um, it's just being down to earth and caring just ultimately makes everything for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's why even the organization, the biggest organization that I choose to help here in Birmingham, um, used to be dealing with AIDS patients because it's Birmingham AIDS outreach. Now they're dealing with all kinds of things. They have expanded what their work. I started to say they've expanded their ministry. They've expanded their work. <laughs> it is their ministry yeah. to where they're now working with a food pantry with people who are who are homeless. They have the Magic City Acceptance Center, which is for teens who are not accepted in in normal society, so that they have a place to be accepted. Um, they have a place to do their laundry and to stop in and eat. And um, they now have a clinic for people who don't feel comfortable going to a regular doctor. They have a, a legal program to help people who may not be able to afford an attorney. It is all those things that are caring for the marginalized people here in Birmingham. And that is where I think ministry is. And I'm not always good at doing it but I will do my best to support the people that are. Mm -hmm. Earl, we've talked a great deal about the local church and the impact it has had on you and your faith and your calling in the ministry. Looking at the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, which you're a part of and which you serve, what do you mm -hmm. think that we're doing really well, and what do you think we as Cumberland Presbyterians are missing? Oh, <laughs> I like that exhale. <laughs> Where do I begin, TJ? <laughs> well, and TJ, you know me well enough to know that there are issues that are big hot button issues in the denomination now and where I stand. And I'm not standing with the majority. And I, I realize that. Well, let's start with... I think the Let's start with the Christian Church is real good at accept, being accepting, hmm. and and being different. Um, 
knowing that my church is going to be different than your church was going to be different than another church. Mm-hmm. That's all wonderful. I love being accepting. Um, I don't, I like the fact that the church has the local autonomy to elect the leaders that they feel are leaders and that presbytery has the ability to ordain who they think are leaders. And, um, I've always appreciated that because it allows it to be, we see something in you that's special. And so that's why I'd like for our denomination to continue that whosoever will mentality. But right now, that's the battle that I see is that there are some who want it to be, you have to believe like I believe, in order to be one of us. And I just don't see that. Um, That's why for my presbytery, I'm very happy with the presbytery I'm in because we were probably the first non-geographic presbytery in that Alabaster is a little island in the middle of one presbytery that belongs to another. And so geographically, I live in the bounds of one presbytery, but serve in another because of the way it's set up. I appreciate that. I appreciate the the presbytery that I left because they serve their churches well in the way that they serve them. It did not serve me well. It did not serve the church that I was working with well. And so I found a place that would. That's what I really like about our denomination is that you can find a place somewhere, somehow. Mm-hmm. There's but a that's Cumberland also Presby- the challenge. Yeah, I have said this all along. There's a uh, Cumberland Presbyterian Church just for you. It may not be in your county, yeah. may not be in your state, may not be in your country, but there is certainly congregation that is hardwired just for you. And it's our role to help others find that special community of faith that has the wonderful name Cumberland Presbyterian on it. Yeah, I agree completely. That's why I think that welcoming Cumberland Presbyterians are misunderstood in that they're not wanting everybody to be accepting. They just want to be able to be accepting where they are and not have to worry about somebody saying, you can't do that. Um, that's, That's our struggle right now is finding that church that is Cumberland Presbyterian and for whoever's looking and knowing that this church is going to do it different than that church, and that's okay that we're not all alike. And that, I think, is our struggle, is that we're not all alike. And how do we work together and still not be all alike? Mm. So back, to, we, my, back to my question, So we, you've mentioned the struggle. In the midst of the struggles of a local church, and as a denomination, what do you think is missing in terms of helping and working through 
the struggles that come with just a body of believers? Honestly, I think that what was lacking at the last GA was a little bit of kindness and a little bit of empathy. Um, I think there are too many people that are too quick to want to be right, that they're not willing to listen to any side that's different than theirs. And they're not willing to say, you may be right for the people that you work with, even though it's not right for me. And that difficulty made a lot of what happened at this last GA feel very harsh. And it was like there was a silence in the room after every decision that was just such a heaviness for me that made this General Assembly so difficult. My, my friends that had things that they wanted did not get everything that they wanted. And I didn't always feel heard overall. That's why I was very appreciative for the committee I was on because I never once felt like they weren't listening to me, even though often I was the minority opinion. Hmm. So I felt like uh, in the big picture, the minority opinion is not being heard and it's being misconstrued. And I think that happens too often, whether it's in the church or it's in government. I just think we can't get caught up with I'm right and you're wrong to the point to where we can't listen to the other side and say, you know, that's a good point I hadn't thought about. Or that we can't get so caught up in factions within the denomination or even within the world that we can't, that we don't automatically go, well, that's bad because they brought it up and we, we didn't bring it up. Um, or we brought this up, so I have to think that it's right, even though it may not be. So I really will always be for a little kindness and a little empathy and a lot of listening. And I didn't feel that. And I still don't in some ways feel that that's happening. It's all a matter of we have to win. And if we don't win, we're going to go somewhere else. And I don't think we're a strong enough denomination for that to happen. But my fear is that that's what is going to happen. That if certain things don't happen the way certain people want, then they're just going to want to pull out. I watched with sadness at everything that happened with the United Methodist Church. And I have a feeling that that's what's going to happen to us. And it's not going to be good no matter what. 
I can't look at it and say, if those people who disagree with me just pull out and are gone, that it's going to make life good because it's not. So what could, what could Earl do to address the pieces that are missing in the Cumberland Presbyterian church? For me personally, it's to be more visible as a person who wants to be empathetic. To not withdraw when the struggle is there, even though it is so very tiring. Um, It means that I have to create my network that will lift me up and support me and listen to me when I am tired, when I am drained, when I feel like it's just not worth the struggle. So in the midst of all of it, I have to continue saying, okay, I have to keep doing this. I can't just give up and go, I'll go somewhere else. Hmm. And that that's easy. And I do have the mechanism for doing that because I do have friends that are in other denominations that have said, you can come over here. But that's the easy way out. And that's going to be people struggling that I love that I don't want them to, to struggle. So I have to remain in here even when I feel like I'm in the smallest of minorities. And when... I feel like people are not understanding and I have to continue to push my points even when people don't want to hear them just because I know that I'm speaking for other people who don't have a voice at all. So when I'm at General Assembly or Presbytery or even at my local church, I have to continue to say, these people don't feel heard and this is what they need for me to say. Even if that makes me look like I am a Mike hog, if it makes me look like a bad guy, um, if it makes me argue with a lot of people, that's okay because I'm not just speaking for me. I'm speaking for other people who don't have a voice. To scroll out a little bit, you had mentioned about leaning on, others, um, which is what you've been talking about, one of your own faith challenges of allowing others to care for you. And that I guess that extends into many aspects of your life, Earl. Mm-hmm. One thing that we haven't touched on um, that is a more recent uh, event in your life is you are stated clerk of Robert Donald Presbytery. How long have you been doing that? Officially, <clears throat> one year. Okay. Um, a little bit more when Francis Dawson had a stroke and was no longer able to do it. Um, there were a couple of things that led me into the job. Number, the biggest thing, Two two big things. Number one, I knew Francis would trust me to do it while she was recovering. And that's a short list. And that she would, yes, 
I knew that that was a short list of people that she would trust to do it mm-hmm. and a short list of people that she would train to do it. And so um, it's also a short list of people that would have the patience to go through it because it was finding things in Francis's house and finding things on Francis's computer <laughs> and finding things just in general that you go, Francis, what about this? And she would go, I don't remember. <laughs> and so she would go, here's the, ba- here's one of the bags that I took to Presbyterian. And I'd go, okay, I'm going to take this home with me mm-hmm. so that I can go through it. The other thing was I knew that there was nobody else jumping at doing this job. And so, um, but it's a job that has to be done. And there were things that had to get done and things that I'm still learning that I have to get done. Mm-hmm. So um, it is a, it is fun, but it's also challenging to make sure that everything that needs to be get done gets done. Um, I have a lot of support from the people of my presbytery, uh, the executive committee, the moderator, the vice moderator, both the the ones that just retired and the ones that took over are great at helping me out with lots of things, but it it is a trying job to all those steady clerks out there. You have my admiration, you have my uh, sympathy and empathy because it is not an easy job. There is a lot that's required of it. That's behind the scenes that people just sometimes don't even know. And Frances Dawson was a wonderful steady clerk. And Frances had her way. And I'm now learning why Frances did things the way Frances did them because they got done. And so being stated, Clark, it's it's not the prestige or anything like that. It's just the fact that somebody had to do this job and I was the one that I knew Frances would let do it. And so... Um, we're still learning. Um, they're still waiting on things at denominational headquarters because I haven't gotten them finished for them. <laughs> there are things that are supposed to have been done six months ago that I'm just now doing. Mm. Um, and so, but we're also in the midst of looking at how Presbytery um, works. In January, we're doing a workshop trying to revision the work of Presbytery for the boards and agencies and the people that are doing the work to say, this is what we should be doing, but we're not doing it because this is what we've always done. Mm -hmm. Or looking at the fact that we don't have a camping program anymore because we don't have enough kids. So what are we going to do for those churches that do have kids to get them in something that they can do? Mm -hmm. How are we going to adjust the way that we've always done things but focusing on young adults, young families and kids to now focusing on older adults and making sure that they're staying active in their church and in the presbytery and just in life. So it's, it's, it's that struggle to change and to accept change and go with change. That is part of the reason why being stated Clark is, is a deal is because it's just, Change is a constant, and COVID changed the way we had to do things, and um, distance changes the way we have to do things, 
and age changes the way we have to do things. <laughs> and so I'm true. not as young as I used to be. <laughs> That's so true. And sometimes I have to remind myself that I'm not as young as I used to be. <laughs> so. Well, and you will always be compared, or at least for a long while, to the way that uh, the former stated clerk, Francis Dawson, used to do it. Just like uh, ministers often face when they follow um, the previous minister, those comparisons are mm -hmm. often there. Sometimes in a sense of relief, and sometimes in a sense of mourning, just because each and every one of us is a bit different. Yes. Thank goodness. Yes. I love the fact that we're all different. <laughs> I, I just, I do. I, it's just, you can't go into a church and do things the way they, they've always done them and do them before. It's just part of it. How boring the life uh, on earth would be if everybody was like TJ. Or Earl. <laughs> there, some things would make it a whole lot better, but some things just wouldn't be the same. <laughs> That's true. Earl, thank you so much. Um, this is the most time I have spent with you, and um, I'm glad to get to know you a little bit better. And blessings to you. Oh, I use that word. Um, but blessings to you in your ministry at Stevenson, Cumberland Presbyterian Church, and as the state of clerk of Robert Donald Presbytery. Well, thank you. I hope you have enough to do the podcast with all the <laughs> ramblings that I've done. So, <laughs> All right. Thank you, Earl. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cumberland Road. Check out the other guests who have gone before Earl. In closing, let me share with you from the Confession of Faith for Cumberland Presbyterians, section 6.22. The church has a responsibility to minister to the needs of persons in every crisis, including physical and emotional illness, economic distress, natural disasters, and accidents due to carelessness and death.